another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it a bit differently today, I'm at home in the home office. You get better audio quality, except for one thing. I've got uh, some hoarseness in my voice going on again. I'm not sure if I've got some level of the crud. I don't feel bad, but my voice is uh, cutting in and out on me. Maybe i just uh, been doing too much work. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, I'm going to do the best I can for you today. Hopefully, we'll get through this together, and uh, my bad voice will uh, still convey the information that you're looking to hear. Today is, what is today? It is December 17th, 2009. We're going to knock off today with episode 339 of the Survival Podcast. It's really amazing when you think about it that we've done that many episodes together. And I appreciate you for hanging with me, listening to my show, and sharing my show with others. Uh, I don't know if I say that enough anymore, but I, I always, always feel it. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, before we get into the main part of today's show, which is going to be another listener feedback show, I want to do my next episode on medicinal plants. I've got five more of them planned, uh, but I just didn't have time in the last couple of weeks. I'm really putting a lot of things to bed before I go full-time in January um, to, to get ready for the next one because uh, I'm really putting a lot of effort into those with research and details. So uh, we'll preempt that. I'll probably be able to do the prep work on that next show today. And uh, then the next time I'm at home, we'll go do that next one because I want the audio, audio quality on those ones to just be stellar. Um, but before we get into today's topic, let's knock out the housekeeping. First and foremost, make, take, make sure you take care of our sponsors by doing business with them. Uh, they do a lot to help provide the show for you on a daily basis. Sponsor of the day number one, Tea Party Silver. Really cool coins. Really beautiful silver rounds, uh, great price and great service. You're dealing with the owner when you place an order there. Um, I really recommend that you make Tea Party silver rounds and the various different collector rounds that they have part of your silver collection. And I may, I'm definitely telling you to make sure there's silver in your portfolio, even if it's only the purchase of a few ounces a month. It's something that lasts a lifetime, and it'll be there for you if we ever get into really bad times with our currency. Next, um, our other sponsor of the day today is Sawtooth Tactical, uh, located at sawtac.com. Uh, check these guys out. They just have so much cool stuff. Uh, they really do. They have so many cool tactical things, as you like to call them. And uh, if you make a purchase from them, make sure you note that you uh, found them at the survivalpodcast.com, and they'll give you a free 50-foot hank of uh, parachute cord rope. Uh, when you place your order. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to the next part of our housekeeping. Get involved with our forum. Uh, I try not to say too much about that other than do it. But let me just tell you, uh, the, the reason that I think you should be involved with our forum is how much information is available to you, how much help is available to you, how great a community is being built around our forum. Uh, I really want you to be part of it if you can make it happen. And all you have to do is go there, fill out a form, and you're a forum member. Right? There's no charge or anything for the forum, so please consider that. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, I think it's really uh, come a long way since the beginning. We have a lot of video planned here at the end of the month as we go into some downtime. Really going to be some cool stuff, so make sure you're a YouTube subscriber. Remember, sometimes when we do uh, prizes and awards, you have to be a YouTube subscriber to play now. So 
uh, make sure you do that. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. Um, and you'll get a whole lot of additional value, man. Uh, I, I say this once in a while just to remind folks. When I started this show, people started after just a little while offering me donations to help support the show. And I turned them down, and I decided eventually that I was going to make a go of this. I was going to make it a full-time endeavor, and I was going to take money from people. I was going to monetize the show because people were willing to do it. And I decided then I would never do it in the form of a donation um, I decided that if you provided any type of financial support of the show, that you would get more back than you put in, in addition to the show. And that's where the Members Brigade came from. And now that's over $150 worth of value on day one, price to support the show, 5 bucks a, uh, a month or $50 a year. That comes out to about $0.20 cents an episode. Two dimes an episode to support the show, plus all the stuff that we give you. So please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. And uh, now let's kick off with uh, some feedback from listeners. Instead of just questions, I wanted to, now that I'm you know home more, occasionally just read emails that come in from folks. So check this first one out. Okay, this email is actually pretty long, and it's from Berserker Prime on the forum. So I'm just going to read to you uh, what I'll call the action part of it, or Berserker and I'll leave his name at that unless he wants to say otherwise, will uh, tell you the things that they've been doing in the last year. And uh, it's a pretty impressive list. It's been a year of firsts in this household, mostly because Jack shows in the forum's inspiration. I'd like to share some highlights with you all. And this was a post on the forum, by the way, guys. Not to brag, show off, or toot my own horn, but to demonstrate how much TSP inspired me to make some very significant changes in my life. Here goes. Planted our first garden ever, learned a ton through trial and error, enjoyed the fruits of our labor, pun intended. Added blueberry, currant, raspberry bushes, as well as cherry trees. Started canning. My wife is OIC of canning. I guess that's officer in charge of canning operations and does a spectacular job. We added a 7-kilowatt generator to the house, came in handy twice last winter. Installed a wood stove. Our new home did not have one yet, and this is a must anywhere I live. Went into overdrive and have put up 18 months worth of food. Obtained EMT-1 certification. Started soaring significant amounts of fuel. Initiated a document storage plan as well as an emergency action plan. Started buying silver. Made my first loaf of bread. Cheesy, I know, but that was a proud day for me. Started back to school to earn an industrial safety degree. So what will the next year hold for the wife and I? Self-sufficiency is our biggest focus. Some of our other goals this year include double the garden size and adjust crop sizes and variety, build a chicken croup and start raising layers, store up store up more food, spices, fuel, and silver, get our ham certification and radios, increase, foc- our, increase and focus our effort on preparedness as a retirement plan, get a wind turbine installed. These are just a few things that we'll be working on. In addition, I'm going back to school to broaden my work opportunities opportunity as well as taking an electrician's course to add to my personal knowledge toolbox. Another huge goal for the coming year is to improve my physical fitness. I went from doing triathlons to gaining 35 pounds being diagnosed with fatty liver disease. This diagnosis gives me the motivation I desperately needed to get back into fighting shape. Thanks again Jack for looking forward to another year with you and the TSP family uh, Berserker Prime. Folks that's the kind of thing that I'm saying that's that's what makes me feel like getting up and doing this show every single day, even a day like today where my voice is just for some reason kind of gone. That's what drives me. 
is to know that people are out there not just listening and enjoying the entertainment and getting the education, but following up with action based on the knowledge gained and then realizing they can only learn so much from any podcast or video or DVD. These are all just starting points that when you start to take action, that's where you're going to have successes and failures, and that's where you're going to do your greatest learning. So thanks, Berserker, for sharing with us. Let me see if I can dig one more out before we take a question. Here's a short one, but one I find a bit interesting. It comes from someone calling themselves Stumpy, as in StumpyPope.com is this uh, person's website. I just went back and listened to your interview with David Wendell. I'm a big fan of Dave, and I admire him and Tam. One of the things you touched on was tolerance of his spiritual views. Self-reliance is all about tolerance. Tolerance of discomfort, tolerance of pain, tolerance of new taste, tolerance of the unknown, and tolerance of fear. It all boils down to being adaptable, and being adaptable means being tolerant. Love you guys, keep it up. Wise words there from someone calling themselves Stumpy. Very wise words. It's important that we be tolerant. I think sometimes um, there's people out there that don't like some of my views and get upset with me and call me like a flaming liberal, which I simply don't understand, because I'm tolerant. And there's a big difference between tolerant and maybe embracing certain things. I might be tolerant of people that live a certain lifestyle. I might want them left alone. I might want them to have and be afforded every right and opportunity that I do. But that doesn't mean that I want to partake in their activity. It doesn't mean I want to be part of it. It just means that I understand that every human being is born with absolute 100% free will. And I'll tell you what, you folks that call yourselves libertarians, but then want to turn around and say, well, except for, you know, uh, what these guys are doing over here, I want to say what, because it doesn't really matter. It could be anything. You're violating your own principles. You're violating your own views. The whole point of libertarianism isn't a system of government. It's a philosophy of non-interference with the rights of others. It is a concept that as long as I don't interfere with you, you should leave me alone and I should leave you alone. If we choose to interact from a financial standpoint or a community standpoint or whatever, that is our business. If we choose to not interact, that is our business as well. And if you want to be a bigoted jerk and you want to go off in your own little world, then you should go off in your own little world with all your bigoted people. And I'll be tolerant of you as well, as long as you don't try to inject your bigoted jerk views into my place. And anybody out there that's such a bigoted jerk that you think that I'm a liberal, please stop listening to this show and you know who you are. You know exactly who you are. And I don't mean to really, don't think that's a broad spectrum stab there, folks. It's it's aimed at one individual who knows who he is, and I'm having fun with this now, um, just because I can. Anyway, I don't want to go too much of an aside there. Let's go ahead and take an actual question today and see what we can come up with. All right, this question comes from Heavy G on the forum, and he sent me an email with a link to his post and said, basically, I think maybe I answered my own question uh, like a dork by the time I got done with my post asking the question, but tell me what you think. And his basic question is, should I put a gun safe in at my bug-out location, and should I put most of my guns at my bug-out location, keep most of my guns at home, or split my guns and keep them secure in both locations so that I mitigate my risk? I like the split concept to a degree. Um, 
I don't know how I like the idea of a gun safe at your bug out location, depending on how secure the location actually is. Do you have, you know, a neighbor with line of sight to your property that you trust that's there kind of as a caretaker, or is it just sitting out there where nobody can see it, and how big is the risk of breaking? The problem with gun safes is if I break into a remote location and I see a gun safe, I look at it and go, I bet there's guns in there. And if I'm remote, I have all day, I might even leave and come back with better equipment to get into that gun safe. So this is a preference. I'm not saying a gun safe is a bad idea. I'm just saying that maybe you need to think a little bit beyond just putting a gun safe in. Maybe it would make sense to put it back in a closet somewhere and maybe also secure the door of the closet. That might slow things down, but I still think it's a risk. I'll tell you one of the things that I've done at my bug out location um, and I could probably tell you where the bug out location is and you'd never find this equipment anyway so it's it, it's a pretty safe thing to explain and I think I don't think I you know I definitely didn't originate this I found an article I think on backwards home uh, magazines website about doing this and it's when I decided to do it for myself um, I didn't want to do this with any really expensive weapons but I, I, I also know that as long as I have a 22 and a few thousand rounds of ammunition I can get a lot done from a survival standpoint. So I have taken two 22 rifles, completely disassembled them, given all of the, uh, the metallic parts a good bath in, uh, in, in gun oil, wrapped them up, and put them into uh, four-inch uh, PVC pipe, uh, and put them down in the ground with a huge stockpile of 22 ammunition with them. Uh, the ends of the pipes are sealed up, and uh, basically dug a hole with pens, uh, post hole diggers, and they're out there. Now, I won't say whether that's the only thing that's out there, but if nothing else, I have 2,000 rounds of ammo and two twenty two uh, rifles. That was actually very inexpensive to do. And the reason I made that decision rather than do something like break down, uh, you know, one of my grands or something with the collector's value and it's a beautiful gun or do it with an AR is I could have a ton of ammo as far as rounds for the most likely scenario that I need is not going to be up there fighting a war like this Red Dawn fantasy that so many people in our industry have that I would be up there trying to feed myself. And if I wanted that, the best thing that I could make sure was always available was a good 22. Now, in addition to that, I won't say where or how, but I have shotgun and shotgun ammunition available to myself up at the location, not in my location. So here's another way you do this. You have somebody that lives out there that you trust that knows kind of why you have the place in the first place. And this is a key thing. Do you trust them? One of the things that you could do maybe is take a gun and a stockpile of ammunition and say, look, and it could even be more along the lines. When I'm up here, sometimes like the hunt or whatever, and I don't feel safe leaving a gun at the house, would you maybe take one shotgun and a couple boxes of shells for me and put it aside somewhere? So we've done that too with our community up there. So that gives us some additional flexibility. We actually still keep the majority of our guns with us. And they'll go with us if we have to bug out. We're also getting to a point where the next time I go up there, I may take a pretty big portion of my guns and use my neighbor for a short-term storage solution until we move there um, because I'm trying to start moving things out of this house, honestly, and get ready to sell it. Uh, so... I want you to just think a little bit beyond just I'll put a safe in at the, the, the bug out location. Because safes, any safe can be broken into. Um, I've looked at a lot of the really heavy duty, very expensive gun safes. And one of the big weaknesses I see is they have external hinges. 
and I could take a uh, what's called a bandsaw, a contractor style bandsaw, a portable handheld one, and I could cut those hinges straight off. And once I cut those hinges off, I get in there. I mean, there's there's a ton of ways to get into a safe. A safe is to slow down theft, to make it too noisy and inconvenient. One of the things that I've done here at this house is I've gotten actually the cheap gun lockers, right? And I got two of them, and I bolted them together. Then I bolted them to the floor, into one corner of the wall, and into the back of a wall inside a closet. Now, if you go in there, you're not getting in there without making a tremendous racket. It's going to take, I mean, those things are not that thick of metal. They can be cut through. But the amount of noise that you're going to make, no burglar is going to be willing to do it. And uh, that is a cheap, inexpensive way to do things, especially when you have a two-story house. Getting one of those safes upstairs is very difficult. So, And, you know, once they're bolted together, you can't even grab the, the, the locker and run away with it because it wouldn't fit through the door now. So there's, there's a thought for kind of your home gun storage and keeping it inexpensive. But if you store your guns remotely, you have to think more than just containment. You also have to think about concealment. So some of the things that you might consider is, can you open up a point in your floor and maybe put a locker down into the floor? That would be safer than a gun safe standing up in a closet or on a back wall. Because now it's not just contained, it's also concealed. Because again, what I'm telling you is, if your place is remote enough, once I come in there and break in there and see a gun safe, I know there's stuff in there that I want. And if you don't come out there but maybe once every couple months and you were just there, I've got two months to figure out how to get it. And the one thing about criminals is they are tenacious when it comes to getting something once they decided they want it. So I would just think a little bit beyond just sticking a gun safe out there. Great question, though. Makes you think. Let's take another one. All right. The next question comes from a guy we'll call Charles. Charles says, Hi, Jack. Just thought I'd touch base with you and let you know that it's obvious that you're not a southern boy by birth. A true southern boy would choose a roll of duct tape as his first item to include in your bug out bag. Ha ha. Seriously though, what do you think of the idea? It's so versatile you can do almost anything with it. Keep up the good work. My wife and I really enjoy listening to you. As an early prepper from the 70s, I'm now learning even more from you. Thanks, Charles. Um, duct tape definitely is on the list of things that go in a bug out bag. There's, there's no doubt about that. I even always carry duct tape kind of in an everyday uh, carry type scenario with a bit of duct tape wrapped around a credit card that then goes into my wallet. And then in my wilderness kits and things like that, there's always some level of duct tape involved. You're right. It is one of the most flexible uh utilitarian things out there I've seen some pretty amazing things done with duct tape those of you who've never watched a TV show called Mythbusters really should watch this show it's uh when you look at like feats of engineering these guys come up with stuff that's just absolutely amazing when they want to recreate a supposed thing that happened and test whether it does and it's not so much that you'll want to recreate the myth that they're testing but by watching the way they engineer things you'll learn a lot well, one episode, they had a myth that duct tape could pick up a car. And it was a certain number of strands, and it was a bunch of strands. I don't remember exactly how it worked, but basically all they did was get duct tape and tape it to like the car on one side and make a big loop and on the other. And they ended up with probably a thousand strands of duct tape, but it wasn't wrapped under the car. It was just adhered to the sides all the way. So you had like a giant loop, like a giant uh, wagon of duct tape, like a covered wagon shape. And they put a thing through it with a crane. And they picked the car up, and it picked up a car. And I don't mean like a Kia. 
I mean a big old, you know, 1980s American steel car they picked up with duct tape. Uh, then they said, well, could we build a boat out of duct tape? They had another myth. They could build a boat out of duct tape. So they did build the frame of this boat out of, like, aluminum or steel. I don't remember what it was. Uh, I think it was kind of a lightweight, thin steel uh, uh, stock they built, a very a skeleton. So they had something to put the duct tape around. And they built a freaking sailboat out of duct tape. The entire hull was duct tape. They did put down a piece of plywood on the steel frame to uh, to act as the uh, the deck, so that they had something to sit on. But they had the whole thing made out of. Du- I mean, the, there was nothing else on the shell of this boat other than duct tape. No coating, nothing. They made a mast and they made a sail out of duct tape. And they sailed on San Francisco Bay in a duct tape boat, and that worked. They also patched a hole in the side of a boat with duct tape, and they decided that was not really that practical because it only worked if you patched the hole while the boat was dry. So I guess in a survival situation, if you had a boat with a hole in it and you needed to get down uh, from across a lake or something, you could really patch up the outside of the boat as long as you could get it out of the water. But then when they tried a different thing, which is they pulled the duct tape off and tried to do like a temporary patch underwater, didn't work very well, and their boat sank. So... There's some different thoughts on duct tape, but absolutely it belongs in there. I don't make a big deal out of it because I think it's one of those things that everybody already knows. Uh, Southern boy or northern boy, doesn't really matter on that one. Uh, but good question, good thought, and hopefully you learned something new about what duct tape could do today. Uh, let's take another question. This question comes from Roger, who lives in Northern Ireland. And he has two questions, and one I really can't give you a great answer to. Uh, his last-ditch bug-out location is actually a yacht where he says he can carry a lot of food, but he wanted to be able to put some plants in pots that can produce some food in addition to fishing, help diversify our eating with not consuming the stored food, and he's looking for plants that you can grow in containers that will be able to handle the salt spray of the ocean. I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I'll look into it. If anybody has any ideas, um, you can uh, post them in uh, the uh, comments section of the blog today. Uh, the only ones that I can immediately think of is uh, purslane, uh, especially sea purslane. Uh, it grows uh, on the beach. It's actually a pretty good green. It's uh, I grow it in my garden. It's considered a weed, but I know that should work because it grows in that environment naturally. The only other thing that I immediately think of is sea buckthorn, uh, which is a, a great plant. Uh, it's actually a nitrogen fixer. It grows these uh, these wonderful orange berries that aren't the greatest for eating out of hand, but they make a very nutritious juice. Uh, it would be a great thing to ward off scurvy, but you need a male and a female, so you need two of them, and they, I just think they get too big for any type of container growing on a yacht. Um, so that's the best I can do for you on that one. Next question, let me see if I can help you with. In Northern Ireland, and even worse than the rest of the UK, it is difficult to legally acquire guns. Great. Socialism, it works, right? Compared to America, and many types of gunners are illegal. I want to protect my family in case of a problem. Would you recommend a semi-automatic rimfire rifle? No larger caliber is legal for semi-automatic. A bolt-action rimfire, a high-caliber or break-action shotgun. Um, so I am getting it that you can have a bolt-action high caliber, which might be something that you would consider, um, or a break-action shotgun. So it sounds like you can't even get like a pump shotgun. All you can get is a break-action shotgun. For basic defense, 
you're probably going to be better off if you can get a break action shotgun, you can probably buy a double barrel. Good old fashioned double barrel shotgun out of all those things for self defense is probably going to be your best bet. I know people are thinking about, you guys got to remember, this guy can't go out and buy a little 9mm pistol, uh, pistol caliber carbine, right? He can't go out and buy an AR. He can't go buy a Remington 870 or a Mossberg 500. Not an option. So out of the three options there, I would tell you that for, for home defense, a double barrel shotgun is going to give you two shots. Each one of them is going to be a fight stopper. High caliber rifle um, is not really the best thing for kind of a home defense situation. Uh, you don't have a, 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 any kind of a real rate of fire with a bolt action. It's more of something uh, for a longer distance shooting. Now, I do think that a semi-automatic 22 is something you should consider as well. Not my first choice in a home defense situation, but a Ruger 10-22 with a great big uh, magazine full of rounds in it, uh, six or seven or eight of those in the chest in about three seconds, and a home intruder is going to be having a really bad day. But I would stick to the shotgun for that. If you can do it, I don't know if there's restrictions on how many guns you can own, what frequency you can buy them in. Out of those, I would consider a shotgun and a 22. And I would try to do both of those. And maybe long term, look at a, you know, we call it a hunting rifle, basically, is the way I would put it. Uh, higher caliber, something in the neighborhood of uh, somewhere between a 243 and a 306, anything in there. Uh, bolt action good set of sights on it, maybe a scope, that's up to you by your preference, but if you had that three-gun battery, I'd feel pretty good about it. I didn't even know you could own that much in Northern Ireland, so um, my other thought is, if you can own those things, you may want to partake of your ability to own them now. It will be much harder in the future for them to be taken away rather than for them to restrict additional purchase. So you may want to act on that. And all I can say to people in this country that don't think we can end up with our guns being seized is all you have to do is look at places like England, look at places like Australia, Ireland, and all of these other places that have done it to their people. And they did have days where they decided it was time to round everything up. And they said, if you bring it in, you bring it in, we'll buy it back. And if you don't bring it in, you go to jail. There was just a British former soldier who found a shotgun in his backyard. A sawed-off, you know, clearly something a criminal dumped. He went into his backyard, saw it laying there, realized he couldn't leave it laying out there for a kid to pick up or another criminal to find. Took the weapon went to the police department, said, I found this, and turned it in. They arrested him for possession of an illegal weapon, and he's been sentenced to five years in prison. And what they said is he has no defense at all. Regardless of how he took possession of the weapon, the minute he took possession of the weapon, he became guilty. That's the nonsense. That's the utter intolerable bullshit that people want to institute in this country. They say they don't. We are not worried about your hunting weapons. And You know what? The Second Amendment is not about hunting. It's about liberty. It's about the right to individual self-defense. And that's why we do not let these people encroach one shred further. They have over 20,000 laws restricting and, and regulating firearms in this country. 20,000 laws is far more than enough. So... I hope that I gave um, Roger the best advice that I can over there in Ireland under his current situation. But my advice to you in America is to stay vigilant. 
continue to support organizations like the NRA, even though they're not perfect, and above all, exercise your rights to keep and bear arms. If you are a person that does not own a gun, but you support the right to own a gun, take your ass out, get trained in basic firearms maintenance and safety and use, and then go buy several guns and put them in your home. And the entire concept of personal property right to self-defense and Second Amendment will change in your heart. You'll understand it so much better. A gun belongs in the home of every free-loving American. I absolutely believe that. I don't talk about it a lot here, but occasionally I have to because I believe it's intrinsic to the value system that made this nation a nation of liberty. I have heard a lot of uh, the conservative talk show hosts talk about how America is a nation of laws, especially when they talk about it in regard to illegal immigration, which I'm no fan of. Make no mistake about this. I just think they're misguided. This nation is not a nation of laws. This nation is a nation of liberty. When we allow a law to be created that didn't exist before, we allow encroachment upon liberty. And we must always look at that balance point. And we must always say to ourselves, is this law worth the loss of liberty that it creates? Will it empower additional liberty? And if the answer is no, we don't need another law. These guys have been making laws from guns to everything else for over 200 years. We have enough freaking laws. What we need is a few less laws, a few less dollars taken out of our pocket, and a little more liberty and a little more freedom. Sorry I got off on a tangent. Let me go to another question before I do this for the rest of the show. This is a great question about something that I should have probably introduced to the audience a long time ago. I'm a huge fan of this program. Uh, the question comes from Jake. Jake says, have a question for you regarding our common beliefs in personal food production, supporting local businesses, etc. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on CSA programs. Supporting local business, healthy food that's close to home, etc. For me personally, being in school in a major city with the ability to get out out of it conveniently and be a part of something like this for only more for only slightly more a week month than a grocery store prices thanks in advance to keep up the great work so what is CSA um, I'll tell you what CSA is but I'm going to prime this in advance so that you're thinking as I do it when I get done telling you what CSA is and how you can get involved and what I like about it when I get done with that I'm going to tell you how if we had come up with this concept around 1880 and started doing it back then that we would have never had the weaknesses in this country that created the Federal Reserve System. And I think I might be the first person to ever make this connection. So give a listen to what CSA is, and then listen to my reasoning. And you guys tell me whether you think I'm right or not. The way CSA works is, uh, again, it's community-supported agriculture. And if I want to participate, I'll find a farm or a farmer that's doing, or a rancher that's doing CSA in my area. And I'll go out to them and I'll say, I want to buy a share of the food that you produce between, you know, let's say, April and November. And it's now February. So the farmer will say a share of all the food that we're going to be produced, each share costs, I don't know, $1,000, $800, $1,500, doesn't matter what it is. Um, so whatever that share is, if I agree, or maybe it's a little bit much for me, so myself and a partner might go in and split our share, and we buy a share. We give the farmer the money today, now. And we buy the advanced production. So we, we risk share a little bit with the farmer. The production could be huge. It could be small. But if the farmer knows what he's doing and he's been there a while, it's going to be more than we need. We know that. So we give him the money. 
And then once the, the harvest starts, every week we show up for our share. And there will be a basket sitting there with all different things and whatever's come due that week that's available. And then we pick our basket up and we say thank you to the farmer. We see the guy that grew our food. We see the people that picked our food. We shake his hand. We take that food home and we eat it. And then we come back next week. And we take any of the food that's in surplus, you know, for a prepper, we have the right mindset, anything that's more than we can eat that week, and we use some type of a storage method to store it. And we can augment our own garden production with something like that. And, of course, what we can do is figure out, well, what are they growing at the CSA farm and grow different things at home and diversify our production that way and support local agriculture. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, Jack, how the hell could this have combated the Federal Reserve System? Don't think I can do it, do you? Here you go. You see, the whole reason that we had what they called cash shortages uh, back in the days before the Federal Reserve is they were artificially created, but you used the biggest industry that most people were tied to in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, which of course was agriculture. We forget that most of the people in this country up until about the 40s were farmers. Small family farmers. Now, the way it worked was, I was a farmer and I needed to buy seed stock for the coming year. Well, I couldn't afford my seed and everything else that I needed for the coming year, so I would go to the banker. The banker would make me a loan, basically purchasing a future on my crop. So that what he would say is, well, I'll loan you... $5,000 to prepare your crop, but when it comes in, you give me $7,000 back. And the future market was created. Now, what happened was the farmers went out and needed all the money all at the same time. So the bankers would loan the money to the farmers all at the same time, who would immediately spend it on seed stocks. It's now pulled out of the bank system. And the bank system had to wait for the money to come back. And then when the money came back, they either had a boom or a bust because if the crop failed and the farmer couldn't pay, all you could do is go try to repossess his, his farm. But if it failed, it was really bad for the banker. It was a risky proposition, this futures market thing, especially tied up in the banking system. So when this happened large scale all across the country and our currency was based on a gold standard and it did not inflate or increase in volume, over time the money would sort of dry up. Because it was pulled out of the banks, to the hands of the farmer, into the hands of the seed company, and it was gone until it came back at harvest time, if the harvest worked. And it happened every year, and the more farms and the more farmers, the more the problem. So that created the crisis. That's how they created the financial crisis. That's how they made people cry out, save us, save us, save us. And in 1913, we got a Federal Reserve System that, of course, by manipulating the amount of currency, the volume of currency in circulation, and the value of the currency in the circulation, we could prevent this from ever happening again. So, how would we have stopped it with community-supported agriculture? What if everybody that lived in the little town around Joe's farm that wanted to buy from Joe would have done the community-supported agricultural thing back then? Went down to Joe and said, Joe, I want to buy one share in your production this year. Here's my, here's my piece. And everybody did that. Would have killed it before it happened. That's how strong CSA has the potential to be. 
It has the dynamic ability to change America by re-empowering the family farm. It makes family farming possible again. It's so hard to go out and buy 10 acres and farm it and make a living. It's so difficult now. Everything's in the way. But when we do CSA, we take out the middleman. We get rid of the person in between. The distribution channel is gone. It's a direct producer-to-consumer relationship. And it's a strong relationship. And it's a relationship that shares the risk. But it shares it in a very small way. Because you're only buying one share of the crop, not risking the entire farm, so to speak, on it. And it helps put these people in business and keep them in business. And over time, the, fr- the farm gets more and more productive as there's more and more people involved and there's more f- cash to fund the farm's operations. And then the farmer never goes broke and we never end up having to do things like Willie Nelson's Farm Aid again it was all about great big farmers that had lost their farms in many ways. We can go back to having people with 10, 20, 30 acre farms, even 5 acre farms with CSA. It's absolutely possible, and it's something that everybody should get involved with on some level. Whether it's a contribution to the organizations themselves, whether it's becoming a shareholder, and I'll tell you what, I'm sitting here right now on the local Harvest website, and I'm looking, and there's green all over this map. Find somebody. Get involved with this. And you think, well, it's winter. This is the time to get involved. This is when the the farmers are marketing. This is when the, the harvest has come in. They're, they're selling the shares for next year's production. Get involved now. Go do it. Support a farmer by taking a stock in his operation and feeding yourself locally. It might cost you a little bit more than a grocery store, but the food is absolutely superior. And you can see where it comes from. Take your, if you've got kids, take your kids with you when you go pick it up. It'll change the dynamics of our nation. That's how I feel about CSA. Great question. Thanks for it. Okay, here's an interesting question, an interesting scenario to be in. Um, comes from Keith. Keith says, Hi, Jack. I've been listening since the very very near the beginning, 18 months ago. Question for you. We have, we're having to move out of our rental house in the spring and decided to build. We live in a very rural area, and my job is here, so we can't just pick up and move across town. I own a piece of land free and clear worth approximately eighty to 100000 Canadian dollars, I think, because this guy's in Canada, that we intend to build on. I can get financing using the land as collateral, but our build project is going to top out at approximately 225 k based on annual income. My problem is that getting on-grid electricity, speaking, is going to be um, $25,000, and gas service will come in at fifteen k. I would like your thoughts on going electric only, running the entire house on electric, primary heat, uh, kitchen stove dryer, etc. So only th- th- that would be twenty five thousand dollars for um, the electrical, not buying the gas and uh, using electric heat. I think that's going to cost you a lot of money to heat your house with electricity that way, or spending the extra cash and getting in gas and then using twenty five k to build an off grid system, wind, photovoltaic, hybrid, battery bank, etc. Instead of grid power. Our power is $0.10 cents a kilowatt here, and gas is around $0.20 cents, uh, square meter. Gas is definitely a cheaper option for heating by half. Average winter temp is minus 18 degrees C for five and a half months. We've been at minus 30 C and lower for two weeks now. I'm one of the ones that laugh when you talk about getting down to 24 degrees Fahrenheit overnight. Hmm. Isn't global warming warming up Canada? 
Never mind, I won't go there today. Uh, fireplace and wood stove will be a backup secondary heat source with a fairly open floor plan to facilitate the heat transfer throughout the house. I just don't know if the budget will allow for the luxury of off-grid living. Looking forward to your answer, Keith. Now, I emailed Keith back and said, my gut is, to use the 20, if you're going to spend the 15 and 25, if you're going to do electric and gas, buy the gas, use it for all the things that are very difficult to provide yourself for with off-grid power. Okay, so those are things like um, your stove and uh, your heat. So that's that's one option. Now, what that does is take the other 25k and free it up to put in an off-grid solar system. He's been told by everybody that he's talked to out there that it's going to cost him 40, not 25. So now we have a delta to make up of about 15k. I would tell you before you make this decision, talk to more people. Ask them why it's going to take 40k. What are they doing for 40k? How much of it could you do yourself for 40k? And cut the cost. In other words, you know what? Wiring the system. I'm all for a professional doing it for something that's going to run the whole house. Absolutely. Designing the system, fine. What's the labor cost to have the panels installed either on a pole system or on your roof? Can you do that yourself? Can you save the labor there? It might be a tremendous savings because that's not difficult to do. That's bolting panels in place. Anybody that's reasonably handy, a couple buddies come over, give them some beer. You got that good beer up there, schooner. I know schooner beer, um, and uh, you get some help and put that in. Maybe that takes off five grand. I don't know, but I tell you to look deeper. I think you can do a lot with an off-grid system at $25,000. Now, there may be just limitations to how much power you want to have available. The other thing to look at is can you scale the house back a little bit and thereby reduce your energy needs, but... I'm telling you, I've looked at a lot of equipment, and I've looked at a lot of costs, and you can do a pretty damn good job at about 25k. You really can. So I want you to look harder before you make this decision. I do not like the option of going purely with electrical and not bringing the gas in, because I think you're going to get killed on heating costs. Now, here's another creative solution. I don't know if it'll work for you, but it might. What would the cost of doing liquid propane for your gas needs be? That would be something to check out. It may not be as good of a solution, but it may be a solution. So again, I know liquid propane, a little bit more expensive, but hear me out on the way that the finances work with this. You have a great big propane tank installed. You have to have it filled once or twice a year. Maybe you go ahead and put in two for some redundancy and backup because you have an infinite storage life. Um, with liquid propane. So you don't have to worry about it going bad or anything. So if it makes it through a full year, great. Uh, the cost of doing that is going to be under $5,000. Uh, probably well under $5,000 to do that. That frees up $10,000 of capital. We take that $10,000 of capital and we move it over to the twenty five k that you already have allocated for the photovoltaic system. That gives you thirty five k. Now you're only five k off of a forty k system that's being proposed to you. Now you beat up your supplier, you push them down to thirty five k, and you get a couple extra panels thrown in. Because trust me, they need the work; they'll do it. There's one way to get this done. Now here's my concern: total cost of the project two hundred twenty five thousand dollars, and you can't go higher because of your income restriction on lending. Maybe it's too high. 
I don't know. You have to make that call for yourself. It worries me a little bit whenever anybody says, this is the biggest loan they'll give me. It, it worries me a little bit less in Canada than in the United States because one place the little bit of draconian socialist government you have up there is probably wiser is a little bit more restrictive on how much debt a person could take relative to their income. So it worries me a little bit less, but it still worries me, and I want you to really evaluate it. Do you need to spend that much money? Can you do the project for 190 180 You might be surprised at what you can do. You're probably married to some type of a dream that your house is, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if it's where you're going to live for the rest of your life, and you can afford it, and you want to do it, and you can figure out how to accelerate your payments against the debt, that's great. It doesn't sound like you have any other debt. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying really think before you do this. How much do you really need? And could you build the property out the way you want and build it with expansion in mind? In other words, maybe there's a room or two less on the house when you build it initially, but it's designed to be added on to seamlessly and easily in the future after you pay off the mortgage. There's a lot of flexibility when you start looking at moving things around and adjusting things. All I'm saying is evaluate this from every direction before you sign anything, take out a loan and start construction. And make sure when somebody tells you, well, it's going to be a minimum of 40000 why? How can we trim the costs? What do I give up if we do this system for five or $10,000 less? How much labor do you have in these components of the projects? Are you willing to take that labor off if I bring my own labor in to do those components? Be flexible. Think. Because you're going to live with the decision for a very long time. The reason I'm inclined to move toward the concept of on-site stored liquid propane and photovoltaic and wind is because at that point you have autonomy. Sure, you have to occasionally pay to refuel the tank, but other than that, everything is on site. And that's the dream that most of us are trying to get to. Since you're at bare bones, haven't put down the first nail yet, haven't cut the first board yet, if there's any way to do it now, it'll be easier to do now than it will ever be to do in the future. And uh, the best way to get off the grid is not to get it on, on, on in the first place. Just some thoughts. It'll be a lot harder to wean yourself off. It's like crack. Electrical grid is like free crack from a crack dealer. You just get the bill at the end of the month. Really hard, really hard to resist, especially once you're part of it. So think about those different ideas. I would either bring the gas in and try to get the the uh, the electrical system done uh, for for a lower price. I would shave off the expense of the, the house construction, maybe make it a little bit smaller, move some of that over to the energy production system. I, I would look at it from every, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I would consider everything before you start spending money, before you put yourself in a debt, and before you make your final decision. With that, folks, I think I'm going to wrap up a little bit early. My voice is really gone today. Uh, hopefully, it'll be back nice and strong tomorrow. I'll be back in the mobile studio tomorrow as well, cruising down the road, maybe yelling at an ass clown one more time for you guys that actually like that. I'm sure I won't have any trouble finding one. And until then, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.